Hi, everybody. Alan Arnett here with another podcast on alanarnett.com. It is Wednesday, April the 20th, 2022. And I wanted to do this midweek podcast and also YouTube video without a lot of pictures this time. I want to make this one kind of a quickie, but I think it's an interesting topic. Uh, first off, just a quick update on the happenings in the Himalayas and around Nepal. Um, you know, we know that people made the summit on Dalagiri. Now they're uh, over on Annapurna. Uh, big, big, heavy winds and snow hit. And so that stopped everybody. Basically, everybody's kind of in a holding pattern. Same thing for my <laughs> the guy that I'm basically pulling for the most this year, 83-year-old Carlos Soria. Um, he's in there with a teammate and six Sherpas. They got up to Camp 3, but the winds and the snow hit, and so uh, they ran out of time basically to try to hit this window, so they retreated to base camp really smart. On his 13th try, he knows the mountain well. He's tweeting that he's feeling good. He feels strong. So next time the window opens, they're going to go for it again. You know, I just got a feeling this year that Carlos is going to get it. He's going to get his uh, 13th 8,000-meter summit on his 13th try. How about that? Who said 13 is an unlucky number? Uh, back on Everest, uh, everybody's now kind of getting in base camp, now finally getting settled down. They're starting to go up and make their first rotations up to Camp 2. Uh, Tim Mosdell, for example, headed up yesterday to go spend two nights at Camp 1 and then four or five nights at Camp 2. I think um, many of the other teams are also getting ready to follow that same pattern. So basically what we're seeing right now on Everest is a, the first part of the uh, rotation uh, process. Hey, if you're wondering why I'm wearing a hat and t-shirt, I just got back from a uh, fairly long run and hike. So, but I had this on my mind while I was moving. So I thought I would, uh, you know, strike iron while the fire is hot, so to speak. Uh, another thing that's kind of interesting right now, there's going to be a team that's going to go up and repair the weather stations that National Geographic and Rolex sponsored back in 2019. Uh, big, huge team, 21 people or so. Uh, and also Pete Athens, a longtime legend. Uh, he was one of the first foreigners, Westerners, non-Sherpas, to reach six summits of Everest. He's going to go back up, um, and I don't think he's going to try to ever uh, summit, but may up, go up to the balcony uh, or maybe to the South Coal to repair that station along with several of the other several of the other Sherpas. So, you know, good on them for doing that. It's always interesting to take a look at that. I'll put the link up on this podcast. Uh, but basically, you can Google weather station on Mount Everest National Geographic, and you'll find a link. Right now, it's not working from a couple of stations. That's why they want to go up and repair them. You know, it's an integral part of doing some climate studies. So it's important that they get it done, uh, you know, quickly, sooner rather than later. So the big thing I wanted to talk about today was how long does it take to climb Mount Everest? You know, when I first tried it back in 2002, I basically left home in late March. April was acclimatizing. May was waiting and trying to go for the summit. And then I had my summit bid around May, I don't know, 19th, 20th. And then it came back home. I was home by June 1st. That whole process took about two months, about eight weeks home to home. 2019, Roxanne Vogel. Roxanne Vogel climbing with Lydia Brady and Alpenglow. She did it in two weeks, home to home. Let that sink in. She went to her house to Mount Everest Summit on the Tibet side and back to her house in two weeks. You know, I can't even get the grass mowed in two weeks. How in the world does she do it? Well, I've got a link also on the on this post about how fast can you climb Everest, but you can also just Google um, um, 
Roxanne Vogel, Lydia Bradley, Brady, sorry, and Alpenglow. And there's some great write-ups. One is a first person by uh, Roxanne. But basically, she used a technique that had been fairly controversial because a lot of people were skeptics, but it's becoming more and more popular these days. And that's using an altitude tent. I, you know, I'll raise my hand and say I was on the skeptical side for a long, long, long time. I still don't think it's a panacea. I think there's a couple of huge problems with it, but I also now believe that it works. I think if you're going down to South America to go climb a 20,000 foot peak, I think it's a great thing to do. Uh, if you're going to climb an 8,000 meter peak, eh, I think, you know, either way you can go with it. Um, you know, I don't think it's going to make the difference in you summiting or not, unless you're you're a special human being uh, genetically that you, your DNA is different than everybody else's and also your genetics. So you can thank your mom and dad and grandparents for passing that along to you, you know, but for just kind of normal, regular people like me, I'm not sure it makes a big difference. It will definitely, let me back up. These altitude tents work by using a generator to simulate a low, uh, low, um, low uh, oxygen content or barometric pressure within a confined space. Typically, it just look like, looks like a big drop cloth, a big plastic bag, and you sleep in it for anywhere from a month to two months. I think Roxanne actually had one at her office. And so uh, she was in it for, you know, probably all the time other than in meetings and in, in, in the car. And so she really used it probably to higher level than almost anybody ever have. Um, you know, some people will talk about having altitude rooms, but, you know, for most normal people, Hypoxico is, is one of the companies out there that sells these things or rents them. And, um, you know, and what it does, you sleep in it and it causes your body to, to react to the low uh, um, oxygen density and it raises your hemocrat levels and uh, overall it increases your red blood cell count. So similar to what happens when you're on, you know, when you're actually climbing at altitude, the critics and the, and the skeptics will argue that it's different because it's a different way of, of causing less oxygen molecules there than happens in the real world. Therefore, how your body reacts is differently. I don't know. I've had some really good friends that I trust and are very analytical, and they've taken their um, they've taken their you know blood samples and measured them throughout this entire process and they showed me the data and you know you can't argue with the data. It shows that you know there is an increase in the red blood cells. So. You know, I used to be a critic of it. I'm not anymore. I say, you know, it's sort of like Diamox. Yeah, I'm not sure it can hurt. Now, some people might consider it not cricket and cheating, doping, like using supplemental oxygen. You know, again, that's not for me to decide on what your values are. You're going to decide those for yourself. And I'm not going to get into that, uh, into that battle. So, um, you know, there was a really good article done in Uphill Athletes, Scott Johnston and Steve House. Um, I think they run one of the best physical training um, consulting organizations out there for aspiring climbers. And, um, and, and Steve House and Monica Priest, who is the uh, team doctor for Adrian Bollinger at Alpenglow, they had a really good conversation. Again, this link is on my blog on this thing. And reading through it, it's really interesting how they go back and forth. It's an incredibly balanced conversation. And at the end of it, they do a kind of a questions and answers like, you know, should I do this? Will it work? Uh, how do I know? And the answer to almost all of those is unknown. 
So that's kind of interesting. But let's back up to the big picture. Why even use an altitude tent in the first place? The big theory is that by using an altitude tent, you know, and by the way, people like Lucas Frutenbach and Adrian Bollinger and other companies now um, are, are aggressively using this, especially for their so-called rapid climbs. Um, you know, they, they swear by it. They swear that there's no downside, there's only an upside. And the big picture is it shortens your overall expedition as shown by, you know, Roxanne, who may be just a completely one-off or maybe 10-off from the, you know, from a bell curve uh, perspective. But it shortens your trip because, for example, if you go to, you go to uh, Nepal, already acclimatized to 17,000 feet, and Everest Space Camp is at 17,500 feet, then in theory that you could just take a helicopter into, let's say, Parache or Dingboche, one of the Shays, and bypass flying into Lukla and doing that, that trek. Now, personally, you've heard me say this a thousand times, I think the trek is one of the best parts of climbing in Nepal. Uh, I think, you know, seeing the monasteries and the kids and the monks and the old ladies spinning prayer wheels, I think that's one of the best things out there. But, you know, if time is short and you've got more money than time, then, you know, this may be a good option for you. So that's the whole purpose of sleeping in these oxygen tents. But, you know, let's, let's break this down of how long it actually takes to climb Mount Everest. There's really six components to it. Getting to Nepal, getting to base camp, acclimatizing your summit attempt, getting back to Kathmandu, and then coming back home. So on travel on the BOSIN, we can knock those out pretty quickly. There's not much you can do to accelerate that. You know, typically it's going to take you two to three days, count, counting time zones, to get over to Kathmandu if you're coming, flying from, let's say, the North America. If you live in India or um, in uh, Western Europe, then our Eastern Europe, you know, obviously that's going to be much, much shorter. But so that time frame is going to be anywhere from one to three days. Returning back home, kind of the same thing. But the problem there is most people get back and they've got to change your airline flight. It's almost impossible to predict when you're going to get back. So now you're at the whims of the airline when you're going to be able to get a seat on that plane at a reasonable price. They love to gouge people for the last minute pricing. Uh, so both ends are kind of one to three days plus or minus. Now, the trek to uh, base camp typically is seven to eight, nine days if you do the standard trek, let's say, from Lukla. If you're coming in from Lhasa, it's about three or four days uh, being driven over the roads. So let's just say it's a week to get to base camp, regardless of which side you get in. Now, here's the big deal, is getting into the acclimatization um, phases. Well, you know, that a lot has changed in the acclimatization. And I'm just going to focus on the Nepal side right now, because that's really where all the action is. So, you know, I, what happens in the, in the past, when I first climbed, I got to base camp, rested up a few days, and then I went through multiple acclimatization rotations. I went halfway up the icefall, came back down, went up to camp one, spent a night, came back down, went up to camp one, spent a night, then to camp two, spent four nights, came back down went up to camp two directly, and then the camp three, spent a night, came back down. Now at that point, I'm acclimatized as close as I can be. Then you go back up to camp two, camp three, high camp at South Cole, to the summit, back down to camp two and back down. So you put all of that together, typically that's um, anywhere from, oh, 20 to 28 days. Now that was kind of the traditional approach. Two or three things have happened here recently. Number one, is that very rare now for teams to actually go sleep at camp three. 
Most people are saying that the return on the investment, if you will, in other words, for all the energy that you put out to go spend a miserable night without oxygen, supplemental oxygen, I hope there's oxygen, anyway, at camp three, that that you're going to, um, that, you know, the return on the investment's poor. You're spending more energy than the benefit that you're getting. So you can get that same benefit by sleeping at camp two for three, four, five nights, going up the load sea face in, to about 7,000 meters, staying there, I mean, basically you go up there and you just, you know, have lunch or a drink of water in a Mars bar and come back down to camp two. And that's, is, that's good as it gets. Other people are being even more extreme. They're starting to put their clients on supplemental oxygen at camp two. Well, again, this becomes one of these, you know, one of these debates about if you're going to use oxygen, then does it matter if you start using it at base camp or using it at the South Coal? You know, I don't know. I kind of in the middle here. I say, you know, 7,000 meters should be the demarcation mark for it. Uh, you don't need supplemental oxygen to get to the top of Aconcagua. So why do you need it to get to Camp 3 on Everest? You know, and also, frankly, if you can't make it to Camp 3 without using O's, then probably your chances of getting to the summit is very poor. And you're probably going to put other people in danger and yourself. So I think that's kind of a kind of a litmus test, if you will. But nonetheless, climbers these days or operators are now taking people only up to tagging 7,000 meters and they're not spending that night. Now, there's a whole nother category. If you're climbing without using supplemental oxygen, you really need to tag 8,000 meters, ideally sleep at 8,000 meters without using supplemental oxygen before you do your summit push. But that's an entirely different program, and that probably adds a good week to 10 days to your overall program. You know, that's the reason that 97% of most people on Everest climb and summit with using supplemental oxygen. And um, just like someone like a Roxanne Vogel, who's an incredible physical specimen, and someone like an Adrian Bollinger who summited Everest and K2, not using O's, and other people, you know, they're different than most people. Um, you know, they're genetically gifted, and also they put in a tremendous amount of work to get physically prepared for that. So, you know, we've taken three days to get to Kathmandu. We've taken about 10 days to get to base camp. Now we've taken about three weeks, maybe four for acclimatization, more like three. Now, basically you're waiting for that weather window. And here's the rub. If you had done the oxygen tent, and so you came in acclimatized, and so you could eliminate one of those rotations, or maybe you did Lobache and did that rotation. Now, weather comes in and you're locked down for seven to 10 days, like a couple of years ago with the dual typhoons that hit. Well, all of that so-called advantage that you got by using the altitude tent completely evaporates and it goes away. Also, if you're the only one on your team that used it, no one else did, you're out of sync. And operators typically like to run everybody up and down at the same uh, in the same groupings, mainly to leverage logistics and things like having enough food there and the right staffing, things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of complications that complexities, I should say, that will go into managing these expeditions. So the, using the altitude tent if for 8,000 meters, it can't hurt. Is it going to be a panacea? Is it going to replace your climatization rotations? No way. You're still going to have to do an acclimatization uh, routine, whatever that may be in order for you to you know, earn the right to go to the summit. 
So there we have it. By the time you get back, you know, it's a summit attempt is about seven days. You know, again, it goes up to Camp 2, 3, South Coal, Summit, Camp 2, back down. That's typically five to seven days, usually it's five days or seven days. And so the total on the south side is anywhere between 42 days and 53 days. Now, there are lots of companies out there that are marketing a three-week so-called flash expedition or rapid ascent. And their ace in the hole is that they say now using their generation of generators that they can get you acclimatized to 8,000 meters. Um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and argue the science because I'm not a scientist, uh, but that does sound aggressive to me. There's no doubt it can be done. We are seeing people do it. Uh, now, is it for everybody? No, probably not. You know, it's probably for the person that's climbed one or two 8,000 meter meters, uh, meter mountains, most likely without oxygen. And now they want to go get Everest. Um, and now they go on these special programs. They're going to be running at a higher flow rate, not the normal two or four, but probably six. And in some cases, some are offering eight. Um, you know, these higher flow of oxygens, uh, they're going to be with highly experienced Sherpas and perhaps Western guides. They're going to have a team doctor right there with them to monitor the entire experience. So it is not your normal expedition. It's really a high-end expedition, and operators are charging between eighty-five dollars and $120,000 for these very, very fast three-week expeditions. Again, fantastic. If you can do it, great. You know, but in general, most people look around six weeks to go do Everest, and the majority of people are at eight weeks home to home. So there you have it. Just thought I'd share that little bit with you. Hope it's interesting. Climb on. This is Alan, and remember, memories are everything.